we're doing as we, as our church beta tests this read through the Bible idea, this context Bible, our class and a few other classes are beta testing, teaching the context scriptures that we've put in to support the main passage. So if you heard Pastor David this morning teach from John 6, Pastor David was teaching from Jesus feeding the 5,000, and it's a marvelous passage. We've got to catch up to it just a little bit because we hadn't covered the first day's reading of this week, which was Jesus as judge. And that's found in John chapter 5, right before the feeding of the 5,000. And so if you had a chance to read it, we'll pick back up with there. Jesus has been talking about the authority he has... And Jesus says to the people, he has the authority as the son of man to execute judgment and to do evil. Or For those who do evil, he will see to that. For those who do righteousness, he will see to that. And this is part of what Jesus is able to do as judge. Now, the support readings for Monday of this week, if you were doing that, I have put in a few things that are extra sensitive to me as a lawyer. One being, God as a judge is an independent judge. You don't have to worry that God is a judge who's pre-decided things in a way that's unfair or unrighteous and or unholy. God operates as an independent judge because he's not looking to curry favor. No one's going to get special favors from God because of who they are or what they've done or because God needs them. You know, one of the frequent questions that people ask, and, and, and I think it's asked generally when you're in your 20s, early 20s, maybe your late teens. I don't know if you ever asked this question, but I can remember at that age asking the question, <clears throat> does God make us because he wants and craves our attention? Our worship. What kind of God is it that that has to have the worship and attention of people? It makes God seem almost like some divine egomaniac. And I loved one of the psalms that came to me in this period that, that helped disavow me of that idea. In fact, I remember when I came across this psalm, which is why I can date this. I was, I was 20 years old. When this psalm came to, came, uh, uh, to my attention as one that, that uh, uh, applies. Go to the Elmo, please. Psalm 50. It's a magnificent psalm that shows God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. He didn't create us because he craved attention. He didn't create us so there'd be a bunch of little bees buzzing around worshiping him. God is fine without us. More than fine, God is complete and whole in the fellowship of the Trinity. God didn't create us because he needed us. God created us out of love to give to us, not for what we give to him. And we see that the mighty one, Psalm 50, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. 
Before him is a devouring, there we can get it, fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heaven above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Now Jesus says, Jesus in John 5 is, has the right to judge because God has given it to him. God in the Old Testament is very clearly the judge. God judges his people. He judges the nations. We see that in another passage. But he comes that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. I don't rebuke you for those burnt offerings that are continually before me. But don't think they buy my favor. I don't accept a bull from your house. I don't accept goats from your folds. Don't you know every beast of the forest is mine? The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all of the birds of the hills. Everything that moves in the fields. If I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. The world is mine. The fullness thereof. Everything in it. Do you think that your sacrifices are being done because I'm hungry? Do you think I crave the flesh of bulls? Now, to us, this may seem a bit foreign. But I want to to go back into ancient civilization for a moment. If you go back and you read some of the stories that were found in the tablets of Nineveh. Nineveh had one of the largest libraries of antiquity. There was a king called Ashurbanipal who reigned in Assyria from Nineveh. He built a library. We're in 700 BC range. And they took these clay tablets and they would take a flat stylus and they wrote in cuneiform on them. And these were discovered by Sir Lanyard uh, uh, in, in Eighteen hundreds, I think, late eighteen hundreds, early. I get it mixed up, but about a hundred and some odd years ago, and and scholars have been able to translate them, and you can buy the translations, and you can read what the nations contemporary to this psalm thought about the gods. The nations contemporary thought that the gods needed. The aroma of sacrifice. That when you burned a bull, the, the, the flesh of the bull was consumed by the gods as the fire turned it into smoke and it went up. They weren't great physicists. They didn't understand the carbonization that we understand. All they knew is, hey, you kill the goat. You put fire to it, and pretty soon the whole thing just sort of shrivels up and turns black, and the goat itself seems to go up in smoke for the gods to eat. And they would tell stories about the gods not being fed, and as a result, the gods would bring a famine on the earth. 
Hey, if I'm not eating, you're not eating. And they would talk about some of the gods. One god in particular got upset because the, the people weren't paying him enough attention. And so he just went off to a field and slept. And he was in charge of the rain. So it wasn't raining. And all the other gods are getting upset because now it's one thing to afflict the people with a famine. But when the famine's so bad that the people don't sacrifice, the rest of the gods aren't getting to eat. So they send a bee, the gods, send a bee to go sting the sleeping god so that it wakes him up. They believe this stuff. These are the same gods that Israel has a tendency to chase after as idols. And into that society and that culture and that mindset comes the voice of the Lord in this psalm that says, do you honestly think if I were hungry, as if that could ever happen, I would ask you to feed me? I made you. I made all of this. I made the beasts of the field. They're all mine. I judge you. I don't need you. That's the thrust of the psalm. And that's why we put it into this context. Jesus judges us. Jesus does not need us. We misunderstand the sacrifice of Jesus. If we think Jesus came to die because of what we could do for him. Jesus came to die because of what he can do for us. And out of the love that we don't deserve, that we don't merit, he gives. And that's the gospel truth and the gospel lesson. So, God's an independent judge. Isaiah 16 shows he's not just judging his people. He judges all of the nations. And then we had in Psalm 75 an important judging metaphor that I almost put at a different place. And as I was getting ready for this lesson, I thought maybe I should have. I might have put it in, in a, um, a less than optimal place. See if you can figure out where I might should have put it instead. Let's look at Psalm 75 together, a judgment psalm. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. By the way, that's a great, great passage to show the Hebrew word for name, Shem. The Hebrew word for name is a reference really, because these are parallel statements, a reference to your deeds. It wasn't the magic of the pronunciation of the words. It wasn't the magic of how do you say Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah. Your name is a reflection of your character. It's who you are. It's what you've done. Anyway, that's a freebie. It wasn't in the lesson. Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God, for your name is near. Your wondrous deeds are near. We recount them. We talk about them. We talk about who you are. At the set time that I appoint. Now it's switched to God speaking here. That's why the translators put quotation marks in the translation so that we pick up on that. At the set time that I appoint, God says, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it's I who keep it steady, its pillars. I say to the boastful, 
do not boast. I say to the wicked, don't lift up your horn. Don't lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Do you know what it means to speak with haughty neck? We use it the same type of expression when we talk about having your nose in the air. That's a haughty neck. I speak with haughty neck. <clears throat> That's haughty neck, okay? Lifting your horn up on high. That goes with the haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one thing and lifting up another. Now you can see why I put this psalm with Jesus saying, I'm the judge, I hope. Now, here's your key. Where could I have put it? Where maybe should I have put it? For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This idea, and it's found in another Old Testament passage as well, that God's judgment is like a cup. There's a cup of judgment that will be have to, have to, to be poured out on the wicked. There's a cup of judgment that the wicked will have to drink to the very dregs. Where could I have put it? Revelation, I could have put it there. That's true. Now, I didn't even think of that. Huh? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but thine be done. Jesus was willing to drink the cup that has to be drunk all the way to its dregs. For the wickedness. Wickedness can't get a half measure of judgment. Wickedness can't be judged with a slap on the wrists. Wickedness is judged to the very bottom of the cup by death. By being cut off. Which is Jesus being... Jesus, I don't think his prayer was simply over... Gee, this is going to be a really tough death. Jesus was about to endure a separation from God the Father that we can't understand because we don't plumb the depths of the Trinity. But it's a, a, a wound that Jesus bears through eternity. So, we added that to it. So, we've got the cup metaphor of the Son as judge. Uh, we've got uh, not only the cup metaphor, but, but there's a reference to the judgment of Tyre and Sidon. And that's a marvelous metaphor. Joel 3 gave us that. I won't take time for that. But I don't want us to leave the Son as judge without understanding he not only drank the cup, but it left us in the position Paul was in. That Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 4 what? 4, 1 through 8. I especially want the end of that. 2 Timothy 4, 
2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. Look at the verse 6. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's another verse that I almost put somewhere else. The Bible's just, there's so many ways to put it together in context. That's a verse I almost put in Revelation. Because there's this glorious scene of the saints surrounding the throne of God. Do you know the song, Holy, Holy, Holy? Not the one we sang, but the one that's the Reformation hymn. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All the earth shall praise thy name on earth and sky and sea. Uh, It's one of my favorite hymns. I can't make it through that hymn without tears in my eyes. It's just fantastic. And there's this passage in there. All holy, holy, holy. All the saints adore thee. Casting down their golden crowns around the crystal sea. Or glassy sea, depending on your version. There is laid up for us a crown of righteousness which the Lord has prepared for all of his saints. And I thank the Lord for that crown. And I look forward to having that crown on judgment day so that I can take it off of my head and lay it before the Lord and say, Only thou art holy. Only thou art worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It would have been a great place to put that passage. But so we go. Um, I did throw in some Proverbs. They're Proverbs about how God judges, that God judges on earth, but he also judges eternally. And I'm not going to go through them right now because we won't make it through everything today. But it's good and and it was useful. All right, that was Monday. Tuesday's reading was Witnesses to Jesus. And this is is worthy of a little explanation, even if it's not uh, uh, the kind of thing that's going to rock your boat and change your life tomorrow. It still helps us to understand some of Scripture. At the end of John 5, Jesus said the following. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment's just. And he's talking about that. And he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and John bore witness to the truth. Now, it's not that I have testimony from from any man. But I say these things so that you might be saved. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint, that doesn't quite fit into our mode of thinking today. Our mode of thinking is a little different. Because we don't have the Hebrew mindset that had existed for a thousand years at the time of Jesus about their court system. Witnesses to Jesus, I called it. 
because that's what Scripture says. Multiple witnesses. And it helps us unlock the understanding of some of these passages if we recognize the principle that we read from Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20, if you had a chance to look at it or if you were following along in the reading that day or maybe you just happened to know it, you, you might know it. This is what it says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or with any offense he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And the the legal system for Israel was set up where you could not accuse someone. You could not go to court with someone. You couldn't win if there was a single witness. We live in a different day and age where there doesn't even have to be a witness. There has to be evidence, but the evidence can be other than a witness. It can take the form of of circumstantial evidence. You know, I didn't have a witness, but we found the gun and the gun had his fingerprints on it. And his hand had the soot from the gun. And we found the receipts that said he bought the gun that killed the, the fella. He's in trouble at that point if he doesn't have an alibi, okay? Now, that's what we can do today. Back then, you had to have witnesses. And it wouldn't suffice to have one. It couldn't be he said, she said, and you're going to kill someone and convict someone and put them to to death because of that. It's got to be more than he said, she said. He did it. No, I didn't. You did. No, you did. No, you did. No, you did. Hey, who cares? Who knows? We don't. So you had to have two or three witnesses. So it wasn't simply for crimes. The the rabbis had understood that and interpreted that to mean also for a claim. If you want to claim property, if you want to claim a right, if you want to claim ownership, you had to have two or three witnesses. So Jesus, they're, they're very wrapped up with this. So is Jesus the Messiah? For the people in his day to accept that claim, that principle was valid. They had to have two or three witnesses. That's some of the beauty of the passage I give you with Moses and Elijah to read with this on the Mount of Transfiguration. You get it in Matthew chapter 17. You get it in Mark chapter 2. Those are the two that I gave you to read. If you read it in Matthew 17, for example, or in in the Mark passage, either one. But if you look at it in Matthew 17, look at this. This is really kind of a cool, this is like Jewish law school class for a minute. Just what you wanted to do on a Sunday morning. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up. By the way, uh, in law school, there's going to be a quiz on this in just a moment. So hold on to that. Led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, there's going to be a quiz on this in a minute. Hold on to it. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise, don't be scaredy cats. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus said, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said, Elijah does come and he'll restore all things. But I'll tell you, Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him. He's speaking to them of John the Baptist at that point. Now, go back to the PowerPoint. What do, please, what do we have here? We have the legal requirement. There are two witnesses to Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Moses and Elijah. You got it? Two witnesses. But... How do you know there were two witnesses? You got to have two witnesses to tell you that there were the two witnesses and that that event happened. Two or three. Jesus, to be extra careful, took three up with him. Peter, James, and John. Says, don't tell anybody till this is over. So he's got the three witnesses to bear witness to the two witnesses and to the voice that came down from above. And you get it in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, which was also your reading on that day. So in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, Peter, one of the witnesses, says the following. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And even there, Peter's saying we. Because it wasn't one. There were multiple witnesses to it. So it's just some of the fun little nuggets of Scripture as we unfold it. I said it might not rock your world. Maybe it does. Um, If we go back to the PowerPoint, um, that same principle happens later on in the story. In the Matthew account, Matthew 11. John the Baptist then sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. Why does he send two? Takes two witnesses. Even John knew that. John didn't want one guy coming back saying, uh, hey, he said yes. John needed to hear it from two witnesses so that it would be reliable. So John sends disciple one and disciple two. They come to Jesus and they say, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers them by performing a bunch of miracles and by scripture. He gives multiple explanations. 
But the miracles are one group attesting to it. And then Jesus says, you go back to John the Baptist and you tell him that you've seen the miracles. Tell him that the miracles are being done. And in the process, Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, and the prophets are being fulfilled. So there's multiple testimonies that the multiple witnesses take back to John the Baptist to affirm that Jesus is who he is. If you look at it in Matthew 11, Jesus then goes a step further. But I want to pause for a moment before I do that. You know, a lot of people want to know, how do I become absolutely certain that God is there? How do I become absolutely 100% certain that Jesus Christ is real and this whole thing's not made up? How do I become 100% guaranteed that I'm not just following something that seemed right and convenient and maybe my parents taught me? And I want to I address that for a moment. I want to do it in two lights. Number one, this is a faith journey. And there is faith involved. I can't make you a 100% absolute certain guarantee that you're not dreaming this whole thing right now. I can make you about 99.9% certain, but I'll bet if I had enough time with you, I might be able to convince you at least 0.1% chance you're just dreaming. We can't be 100% certain of almost anything in this world. But I'll tell you this, while it's a faith walk, it's not a blind faith walk. It's not a blind leap of faith. God doesn't say, put your Hat, uh, your, your head on the hat rack when you come in because you can't use your brains and be a believer. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ not simply because of what I sense within my heart and the way I've seen Him change me. But I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because it makes more sense to me than anything else I've ever seen. It not only explains to me how I am the way I am, how my friends are the way my friends are, but it explains to me why the world is the way the world is. It's the most logical, sensible thing there is to me. And what these passages tell me is that Jesus and God were not out to simply, nor were the apostles out, to simply say, hey, just believe. In the face of everything saying logically you're an idiot for believing, just believe. They weren't saying that at all. God didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you reason to believe. I'm going to give you witnesses. I'm going to give you accountability. I'm going to give you rational, constructive reasons for you to put your faith in it. And we are no less given those reasons today. And I don't mean by that, well, so we have to accept what Peter said. Well, you don't have to accept it. But if you start looking at the alternatives, what makes the most sense? I mean, honestly, we're in the year 2014. And we're reading from what some 
fisherman said? From some quaint little village in some backwater of the Roman Empire? Almost 2,000 years ago? I mean, what are the odds? What are the... Why would anyone a year later, five years later, ten years later, thirty years later, give a rip about what some fisherman wrote if there weren't truths attached that that fisherman died for? Peter suffers a martyr's death. There are reasons to believe this beyond just simple blind faith. And uh, uh, I urge you to never lose track of that. If your faith ever is shaken and challenged, don't let go of it. Don't write it off as irrational. Struggle with the Lord over it. Pray about it. Use your mind. Research it. Talk to people of faith. Talk to find the Steve Taylors of the world or the other people who, who you, you can bump into who, who clearly have thought through some of this and, and don't stand in the, 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 the presence of Almighty God putting their life and, and, into faith blindly because they can give help to you. There are multiple witnesses. Now, Jesus, let's go back to the passage. Um, and you can read about that. We're skipping that one. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, Jesus as provider. I wanted to get to where Pastor David was today. Jesus as provider, John 6, 1 through 15. This is where Jesus feeds the masses with Snickers bars. The, um, if you were in church this morning, you get that. Um, Jesus provides the physical food, the loaves and the fishes. He multiplies them. And, and, and it is, as Pastor David pointed out, Something that strongly reverberates through the Old Testament. It was near the time of the Passover. The Passover and the Old Testament in Numbers 9 was our reading. um, uh, Set out some very important ideas. And I was especially intrigued in the Numbers 9. Where did I do it? Yeah, I did the whole thing. In Numbers 9, we have this Passover celebrated. Now this is... One of the passages that would have been in the minds of the people, because it's Passover time when Jesus feeds them, the, the feeds the five thousand. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, and He said, "Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time." And He tells when that will be, and He tells how that will be, and what they will be doing. As they keep it. And so, whoops, the people did as they were told to do. And all of the instructions are there. And then we read as we continue. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until the morning. So it always was. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, follow this, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. So at the command of the Lord they set out. At the command of the Lord they sat back down and they stopped. Sometimes the cloud would stay for days and sometimes the cloud would move the next day. 
The point of this is, is a needy people stay in the presence of God. And you had it with the 5,000 who had a physical need. And Jesus, after that, walks across the, the lake to get away from them. John the Baptist has just been killed. He wants some time to himself. And the people follow him. And Jesus doesn't get upset. He's a little uh, uh, pointed about their motives. But Jesus isn't upset with them because the needy people follow the Lord. And there's a lesson there that, that we need to follow. That's part of what the Passover lesson is. A needy people follow the Lord. Now I also put in there the Shunammite woman. This is a Second Kings 4 story. And if you don't know the story, you need to read the story. I'm not going to go into it because it's, I don't have the time. But it's a priceless story of Elijah, Elisha, coming to a woman who's a Shunammite. The woman and her husband put Elisha up all the time when he's out doing his itinerant prophet work. In fact, they build him a little room on the top of their house. And uh, Elisha is so blessed by it that one day the Shunammite woman clearly has never been able to have kids. He says, uh, God's going to give you a son this time next year. And she says, please don't, don't toy with my emotions. You know, clearly it's something she'd always wanted. And he says, hey, it's going to happen. And sure enough, next year she has a son. And, 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 and the son continues to grow up and the son's a young boy. And as the son grows, are you coming to me? No, you're not coming to me. Okay, as the son grows up, the son's a young boy. As the son grows up, the son dies. And the Shunammite woman's just absolutely, totally distraught. And she doesn't understand. The son dies and, and, and she, she's, she's, she's beside herself. And, and she says, I didn't even ask for him. And you gave him to me. And Elisha says, no worries. And he sends his servant to go take care of her. But the servant comes back and says, I can't do anything. This kid's dead. And then Elisha goes. And Elisha prays over the kid. God doesn't seem to do anything about it. And Elisha just climbs on top of the kid. And just it's as if, God, take the breath from me and put it into the kid. And God restores the kid to health. God is the provider. God is the provider. And he provides in so many marvelous ways. So after the provision of the food, Jesus walks across the water. Now, we're missing some of the story... We got it in Pastor David's sermon. But we're missing some of the story if we don't constantly see how John is tracking with the books of Moses. You know, John started out, in the beginning was the word. Moses, first book of Moses starts out, in the beginning God created. Okay? And, and Moses, John continues to track with Moses. So Moses brings down the manna from the wilderness. And Jesus has the discourse with the people that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You know, Moses, uh, 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 John says earlier, grace, uh, 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 that the law came from Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. And you just continue to see this tracking. Well, that's why John's got Jesus walking on the water and puts it in here. See, Moses is able to part the red, uses his staff, God parts the Red Sea through Moses. With Jesus, doesn't need to be parted. He just walks right across. Someone greater than Moses is here. So Jesus is echoing 
God as the master of nature. And so the readings that day, Exodus 13 and 14, Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, Joshua 1, 3 and 4, the the parting of the Jordan River for the Israelites to know that they're walking under Joshua with, with the blessings of God as they go to conquer the promised land. Mark 4, 35 through 41, as, as Mark records Jesus calming the seas. God is master of nature. And then the reading ends with Jesus saying he's also God's manna. This was at the end of David's message. It's, it's the idea Jesus, you know, I, I love the way David, Pastor David described it today. The manna came to the people because the people were dying of starvation. They needed bread. They needed food. So it came from heaven to be ingested by the people so the people could live. Jesus says, I am that bread that gives life. I have come from heaven, the hand of God, to be ingested by the people so the people will live. It's a much greater truth. And I would say that Jesus is, is, is pulling from the Moses story, except that's not what the Bible teaches. What Hebrews 1 teaches is that the Moses story was put there so that we would see Jesus for who Jesus is. Jesus was the goal. He's the plan. He's the one. The Moses story is there as a faint echo of the true story in Jesus. Do you see the difference? So it's the marvelousness of this. And this is why I ended that that whole idea of Jesus as the manna from heaven. The bread of life. By the way, you've probably, if you've been in many of my classes, you'll know this is one of my favorite puns that God gave us in the Bible. So if we go to the Elmo for a moment. Just take one minute to make sure we all know this pun. Jesus is, whoops, where, there it is. Jesus is the bread of life. Now, bread in the Hebrew is lechem. Lechem. Okay, let me write it in English. Bread in Hebrew is lechem. The, you, you get phlegm in your throat for the H. Okay? Kind of like you're going to spit a little bit. Now, does anybody from our Old Testament survey remember the Hebrew word for house? Bait. Bait equals house in Hebrew. It's bait. Okay? So, if I wanted the house of bread, how would I say that in Hebrew? Bethlehem. Isn't it fantastic that from the house of bread came the bread of life? Just one of God's fun little puns for us. One of his delicious little truths tucked in to the very words. From the house of bread comes the bread of life. And it's spectacular.
So I joined Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17. If we go back to the PowerPoint. I joined Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about this for a moment. To the king of the ages. The one who, this is my whole idea. Moses is the echo, the the foreshadowing, I think, is what Ellen would tell me to use the English word, right? Ellen's always over there. There she is. Foreshadowing. Because he's the king of the ages. He's immortal. He lives forever. Invisible today, we don't see him. The only God, Jesus, the only God, God the Father, the only God, the Holy Spirit, the only God. Paul was not a tri-theist. There is one God, but within the beauty of that one God is God in three persons. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So with that, we have points for home. Number one, I need God more than he needs me. I need God more than he needs me. He doesn't need me at all, but I can't live without him. I can't survive without him. I can't thrive without him. And I have no hope without him. I have no destiny without him. I have no righteousness without him. I have no holiness without him. I have no significance without him. I have no meaning without him. I have nothing to offer you without him. I have nothing fruitful without him. The works of my hands are rubbish without him. The deeds of my flesh are garbage. If he has not infused them with his direction, his righteousness, his purposes... Everything I have, Paul says, everything is garbage compared to the value of knowing Christ. Paul says, that's Philippians, to to the Corinthians, he says, everything I do is wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned in the fire unless it's being done by the Spirit of God and it's the works of God in which event it's gold and it's silver and it may be purified by the fire, but it will last through eternity. And that's what I want to do with my time. And that's what I want to do with my hands. I need God more than he needs me. And I can trust God for all of my needs. I can trust God to meet my needs. I can trust God to meet my needs physically. I can trust God to meet my needs financially. I can trust God to meet my needs socially. I can trust God to meet my needs spiritually. And you might say, well, I don't need God to meet my needs financially. I've got a job. Watch it. Who do you think got you your job? You might say, well, I don't need God to meet my needs physically. I've, got, uh, I've eaten plenty. I'm good for the next day. Watch it. If God doesn't watch after you physically, there might not be a next day. Then we have that other side of the coin that we talk about sometimes. Well, what about when God 
takes someone to heaven and we wanted them to be here? What about when when someone dies? What about when when there's tragedy? What about when bad things happen? What about when there's suffering? What about when it doesn't seem he's meeting my needs? Those are the days where in faith we stand up and say Jesus is Messiah and I will praise him all of my days. Because I've asked him if he would be my Lord and he said yes. And if I don't think he's treating me fairly or he's treating me the way I want it, then I've just turned it into all about me when it's all about him. And I've signed on to his plan and I've signed on to his program. And if it doesn't seem to be going the way I want it to go and it's really difficult and it's really hard... All I know to do is say, Lord, it doesn't seem to be going the way I want it to go. It's really difficult. It's really hard. But I will praise you all of my days to the only king immortal, all glory, honor, and power forever and ever. Amen. Lord, teach me to wait for you. Teach me to walk for you. Teach me to do for you. Because what it really needs to be about is your kingdom. Before in the Lord's Prayer it gets to me, 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 it's you, you, you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then please give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Help us forgive others who trespass or debt against us. And don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. That's what we need. And he will be faithful. Would you let me pray with you, please? Father, we come to you spiritually bended on our knees. There's a lot of truth that was in your scriptures this week for us to read and, and that we've discussed this morning. And in the midst of all of that truth, I pray that your spirit will grab hold of something for each person listening. That some aspect of truth in your scripture will, will blaze its way into our hearts. Something that we hold on to that, that helps transform us more into the image of your Son. Something that instills in us a greater measure of faith. Father, for those who are struggling with their faith, I pray for you to reveal yourself to them. That we, the faithful, will be witnesses to who you are to them. That you will pull down any strongholds of 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 seeming earthly uh, 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 wisdom or logic that fly in the way of your true wisdom, your true logic. Father, for those who are hurting, who need provision of need, I pray you will provide for their needs. Whether you do it supernaturally or naturally, Lord, that your hand is the giver of all good things will reach down and provide first, Lord, for the spiritual needs. Put their hearts where they need to be. Put their minds where they need to be. Work through the circumstances to transform them into the people they need to be to serve you in the roles you're calling them in tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. But in the process, Lord, through faith, would you uh, uh, instill in them a confidence and an ability to see your blessing moment by moment. We give you all glory, honor, and praise as our all-sufficient and loving God. Through Jesus, our salvation. Amen.